And my guest this week is Chris Ware. Uh, Chris Ware was on, I guess it was probably seven or eight years ago, joined by Ajit here to talk about um, the Frank King, uh, the work of Frank King from Gasoline Alley. And I'd asked Chris, hey, you should come on the Ink Studs. And he said, yeah. And then I never followed up. Uh, and so here we are, getting close to 10 years later um, in honor That's of. Right now. All my cells have been replaced now, so... There we go. You're a whole new man. Um, and your new book is Monograph, uh, which I can't actually lift right now because it's behind me, and I'll probably knock over a stack of books. Um, yeah, sorry about swinging that. it over. It's uh, an impressive display of um, just kind of a... Solipsistic hutzpah. <laughs> I, I was going to be more... Uh, just the... The amount of reflection and looking at your work and kind of giving an overview and understanding and um, recollection and a bunch of other words I can't think of right now. Um, I was really pleased and I spent the whole week um, dived in it, wore my glasses. Oh boy, um, sorry about that. It's the I think it's the, the Gary Goth, Groth rules of interviews. You got to read everything. So um, I'm Jeez, ready. I'm really sorry. I should send you a fee or something like that. A oh, medical I'm, bill. I, I'm mm. I'm sure I'll be okay, Chris. Um, okay. Now, I guess um, we'll start out talking about monograph and then kind of 
go from there in kind of different directions. I kind of made a couple of pages of notes of just different things that kind of mm -hmm. struck out to or jumped out to me uh, looking through your work. Um, and so there's kind of different narrative threads I want to pull on. Um, going through the work and putting together the monograph, um, tell me how it kind of what kind of new understanding you got of your own work, having spending time looking at the biography and developing that and kind of re-looking at things in the past. I don't know if you like. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, I, first of all, I, that was, oh. um, the, it was, the book itself was done in answer to a very uh, kind and generous uh, offer by the publisher of Rizzoli Charles Myers in 2006 in the wake of a, uh, show I had at the Museum of Contemporary Art of Chicago um, to do uh, some sort of art book or produce some sort of art book about my stuff, which I um, was very flattered to receive, but uh, felt that it should probably be delayed given that I didn't feel I had enough work to really justify such a project. So um, that delay, I guess, lasted over 10 years or so. After building stories, I thought that maybe then was enough so um and rather than do the typical art book thing of having pictures of work that was isolated in museums or private collections with then uh text by critics or notable scholars or whatever i decided to do the whole thing myself as a way of of hopefully maybe making it a little stranger or more interesting and just talk about the sort of personal things that I was going through at the time when I was making this stupid stuff and and what I was thinking just whatever came to mind as I as I looked at the, the pictures of of what I was including so that in a way that I, I hope would be maybe more interesting for a reader and something that I guess really only I could do but the risk of course then being that it would end up being very possibly self-indulgent or or self-revising or any sort of self things. Um, and even worse that it might end up looking then like an illustrated biography, which I guess it, it looks like now, which was not my intention at all. But when you put pictures in chronological order with writing about oneself, I guess that's kind of what you end up with. But I, I really didn't, didn't mean it that way. So um, uh, anyway, so I guess that qualifies as an answer. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's biography in a way, but to me, it's not because um, it's about the work and about how your life informed the work in a way at that point. Um, and less... yeah, I think I think it's you know, there's a lot of artists who feel that their their lives should be separated from their work, which always seems really disingenuous to me. I don't, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you, you can't you can't really you can't separate out the two. That's like separating the interior of the pumpkin when you open it up or something. It's you know, you can do it, but it's messy so um and i i've never been one for um openly prevaricating or trying to lie or create a shell or think that it's amusing somehow to to try to uh, make things up about myself beyond creating a fake uh you know corporate name or something and hiding behind that but that's a mask that's easily seen through and a and a joke but beyond that everything i've 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 tried to say about myself is to be as was to be as honest as I could be, um, since there's really not a whole lot of time that we spend on this planet. I don't really see what the point is of of of, uh, of proffering stories that are adjusted or whatever to uh, reinvent myself. So, 
But then again, um, as hard as one can try to, to be as honest as possible, the, the human brain is an unreliable um, information source, and one can end up with a lot of false memories and readjustments anyway. So I've found that writing about things that I did a number of years in the past, I can I won't even remember really what I was thinking at the time. And, and what I thought I was thinking at the time was not actually what I was thinking at the time. So in this case, I, I really tried hard to, but there may be cases where I, you know, I am unintentionally reinventing. So. Um, and that's, that's, I was um, reading Jordan Lint last night and that's something you touch upon in that book. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's a connection right. there. Um, with well, sure, there's a connection everywhere. I mean, as, as human beings, that's what we do. That is, that's our job. That's how we get through life. We are all we have is, is our is our memories of our lives from start to finish. You know, we can we can all the things that we acquire, all the people we know, are nothing more than encoded memories in our in our in our brains, and we revise, restructure forget remember those things on a on a daily basis um dream them away wake up forget them and are constantly rewriting the stories of our lives based on whatever vision we we want to have of ourselves um which i think is really why fiction is is really so important to us it's it's not really a matter of having a book that tells you how to live your life but a book that presents one version or one sympathetic way of living one's life against which you can kind of try to harmonize, I guess, you know, without sounding too pretentious about it. So at least that's the way I feel when I'm reading really good novels. Um, so I, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, all we have behind us is this, is this wake of memories and that's, that's it. Is that one of the reasons, cause I know you're, you, you've talked about this before you're doing the daily, uh, comic for yourself or for mm-hmm. for your legacy or for your daughter um it's part of that the the kind of trying to remember things um or just keep track of like things that have happened and just there's a note of that experience absolutely yeah entirely that's how it started i noticed in 2002 when i started it that i, I was just forgetting more and more things it said it was it almost, it almost felt to me like there's something about being a cartoonist that almost makes one forget one's life. Uh, and so it's sort of a stopgap against that. I started keeping this diary as a way of trying to remember the essentials or how I was feeling or my doubts or all sorts of different things. And then to try to present a sense of life before my daughter was born and then her early life and even such mundane things as the, you know, the play dates that she would have with her friends so that when she's in her thirties, maybe she can look at it and, and, uh, and have her own memories maybe come back to her, hopefully, though. I don't know, you know, it's a, you know, it may be a completely silly, silly experiment or something, but ideally I, I, I plan on, keeping it every day until I can't hold that pen anymore. So, um, it's, I, I think it's an amazing thing. And just, um, to be able to do that, to be able to keep track of that, um, just talking to friends and seeing his, um, kind of lost things that lose with families and stuff and legacies and kind of knowledge of things. And it's hard to like, when that information is just gone, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I really wish I had something like this in my own childhood. Yeah. Um, something that I could go back to. There, there. Occasionally, I'll meet people. You'll hear of. I'll hear of people who have kept a diary since they were a kid, and I'm just so jealous of them. And I, I don't think they realize how truly lucky they are. And I've tried to encourage my daughter to do the same, but I fear my encouragements are the sort of you know makes her not want to do it or something so she writes things down occasionally but i don't know anyway my family does, it does take time sorry my family doesn't even remember if i had chicken pox when i was young really <laughs> isn't that weird like something like that like a big event like that yeah I, i've talked to my mom about friends that i had and she she actually claimed once that a person that i remember spending time with didn't exist that I'd made this person up. And then two weeks later, she called me and was deeply apologetic and said, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot about that person existing. And I suddenly remembered that, yes, they did exist. So it's, I mean, that's a big thing. It's not just like was the salt shaker on the left or the right when we were growing up in the, you know, in the, in the kitchen in which we ate dinner. I mean, erasing entire people from your memory. That's, those are those. I mean, that right there points towards the true fallibility yeah. of memory. And we have this this idea that somehow, like when something happens, then we have this vision that's completely accurate and reliable in our minds. And that's not 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 the case at all. Even so much as I mean, right now, if somebody asked us to reproduce this conversation that we're having in some level of of convincing detail i think both of us would be hard pressed to even come anywhere near it so no i remember like i've had people ask me like specific points in interviews and like i can't remember like there's there's yeah. there's snapshots there's things that i remember within interviews like interesting stuff that sticks out to me but i can't tell you like what i talked to someone about four years ago it's it's just a conversation but because it's recorded someone else has listened to that conversation they're asking about your conversation but we're not going to remember right. conversations. It's, it's curious too, because I think the second, the, the, the moment in history where sound became an object with the possibility of actually making sound a capturable thing with the advent of recording uh, first, just to simply create a waveform on a smoked glass cylinder. Yeah. Um, and then, somehow figure out a way of, of making that into something that could be played back with tin foil and then and then wax turned sound into a thing and that's the second that it started to become something that was not only graspable and seen in a different way and lost its poetic content but also we started giving over our memories to other things and I've mentioned this before for, I think that I, I can't remember where I read it, but apparently it before the advent of sound recording, most composers could reproduce uh, pieces of music fairly creditably, creditably mm-hmm. uh, after a single hearing because they had to. They had no other choice. Mm-hmm. They they had to have that sort of attentiveness and and presence of mind to do something like that. And and the moment that one gives one memory over to a new technology or a new way of somehow recording what we think of as reality, then we give something up. And I think that's what's happening to us now with cell phones. 
giving over so much of our lives and our consciousness and our attention to these things. Um, I don't know what the end result of that's going to be. The last sense that's that's unrecorded at this moment is smell, which is why I think it has the most poetic power. And it also goes all the way back probably to the beginnings of human consciousness and life. It's very sort of brutal and predatory. But uh, Well, smell is also, also one of the biggest indicators of memory. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Sort of and it, inculcators, I guess. In a way, it's it's interesting with the cell phones things because it also makes things so ephemeral mm-hmm. in a way, too. Like nothing, because we have so much of what's happening every day, nothing really carries a weight as, as an object if it's mm-hmm. digital. I mean, your phone drops in the toilet and then it's gone, you know, all of that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, unless the NSA has been recording it along with you. Um, That's why. Yeah, I'll sit next. You know, you'll sit next to somebody on a plane, and they'll be flipping through the photos they took on their on their trip with their thumb, you know, racing by at you know a hundred miles an hour, and you think, are they really going to look at all those pictures again? Are they just going to end up glutting a hard drive somewhere? It's astonishing, and you think how incredibly well recorded now our lives are compared to just as recently as a decade ago and certainly three or four decades ago. It's, it's interesting. Like I find when I go traveling, like for a while, I was really into taking a lot of photos of things, but I'm in this point where like, I hardly take any photos because it just takes me out of the experience. And then afterwards I've got, you know, all the regret of not taking any photos. (laughs) (laughs) How awful. Of course, then if you'd taken the pictures, your memories would be of the pictures you took rather than the actual events. So yeah. No, exactly. Double-edged sword, I don't know. I'm sure they're working on a way to somehow get it all so it just plugs into our brains so it'll be a, a marketable commercial advertising uh, platform, i.e. consciousness or something. I don't know <laughs> you want to think about it. Um, one thing that kind of what we're talking about I want to tie in with, with your book is um, the looking at kind of your own family's legacy within newspapers and cartooning. Um, mm-hmm. And just how much um, this thought about like keeping onto onto thoughts and memories um, is there more you wanted to know that you weren't able to know um, from conversations with family and stuff? Um, you kind of piece things about... together about like your family. It was I think it was your grandfather or great grandfather was it that worked in the newspaper and did cartooning? Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, that was my grandfather. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there is. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of unknown unknowns. Um, and when I saw my mom recently, actually, she suggested that I was much more interested in Renaissance painting and architecture than I recall at all being as a kid. So, And I'm not sure if that's her revising um, history and her vision of myself or if it's actually true. I mean, I guess there's really no way of ever finding out. Um but as far as stories about my family goes, I, I mean, I think I know what there is to know, but I might have forgotten stuff. And, and um, certainly every once in a while, my mom will surprise me with, a, with something that I hadn't known before. So I really don't very desperately do wish I'd recorded my grandmother's uh, stories that 
she told me all those years over the kitchen table, which I never did. I tried to write down a few, but I never once turned on the tape recorder. So actually that's not true. I did turn it on once and she, she said, she just completely froze and couldn't, yeah. couldn't talk. So I realized that was, that was not going to work. So my, my dad tried to do this, something similar with my grandmother um, mm-hmm. and with a video and she was not into it. Yeah. But my my sister tried doing something where she'd document um, my grandma's history and kind of her matrilineal line, um, mm-hmm. and research that. And I don't know what came of that, but it sounds like an interesting kind of thing to pursue. Um, yeah. Well, you're lucky. At least you tried. So yeah. it seems like when when people turn cameras on themselves these days, they adopt this sort of uh, Hollywood canted look, like the selfie you know, smile on the, the sort of hand gestures that I don't quite understand or why I don't understand. You know, I don't even know why anybody would want to do something. It's it's sort of the the Facebook curatorial reinvention of oneself is happier than one actually is, you know, and I, um, I, I kind of quit taking pictures actually, but I'll take little short movies of moments in my life and then just assemble them chronologically. And it makes kind of an interesting um, kind of, run through of, of a of a couple of months or so because I, I found that looking back at them that my mind is sort of unconsciously arranging them in a way or there'll be certain things that will repeat in certain corners of like the left hand corner of the frame much in the same way that when I draw comics certain things crop up in ways that I'm not predicting at all so I think there our brains are really looking for certain things sometimes that we don't we're not even aware of do you find there's carryover of particular things from that you see in similarities between doing little film and stuff you've done in your comics? Those, those unconscious things or they not be, not between the, no, not between the video and comics, but definitely between my diary and comics. Like I think I couldn't have done building stories if I hadn't been doing the diary at the same time. Mm-hmm. And some of the, some of actually the form of the diary is reflected in the, in building stories, I think, but um, yeah, not really the not really the videos. It's kind of a different thing, I think. So I think you know everybody does that. I think so. Yeah, I One degree or another. I like the idea of just doing things for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say beyond that. I can't say anything more <laughs> illuminating. Is that hard though? Like because um, really, you're your career is being creative and needing to, you know, create work and create work and create work and kind of how do you balance that? Like you want to do something creative, but you know, you have to have it be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sorry to keep interrupting. No, no, no. Awkward satellite hookup delay problem here, but yeah, definitely. I mean, the reason, one of the other reasons I started the diary, it was simply because I made the fatal mistake of, of printing my sketchbooks um, with, run in quarterly and I realized that the, the, the moment that they appeared it, it rendered my sketchbook useless because suddenly it become this sort of public thing and, and I before that it hadn't been at all so um, and I still try to convince myself that it's not somehow but I can't shake the feeling that at some point it might end up being and um, so the doing the diary as a way I guess of somehow trying to avoid that knowing that it'll never see publication in my lifetime it's impossible that it would so that's I mean aside from being sort of a humbling um, 
uh, framing, I guess, of, of an endeavor. It's, it's also um, relieving. There's no pressure or anything. So. Um, I want to ask about some particular um, comics by other folks that I feel probably had a, an effect on you and kind of talk about that a little bit. Because um, you touch on a couple of folks within the book. And the first I want to talk about is um, Robert Crumb's History of America. Mm -hmm. And um, when you first saw that and kind of what gears it got moving. Yeah, that particular strip to me, it's sort of, it's it's the closest thing to Richard McGuire's here that I, I, I think I'd ever come across. But I I can't remember. I guess, does it predate it? I'm actually vague on, the, it, I, on the date that it did that. I think it might have been late 80s. I can't remember now. I thought it was And I think Richard's arcade. here appeared in 89. Was it in arcade? Okay, yeah, then it definitely is. It is earlier than that. So, yeah, I mean that particular strip just just taking a fixed point and showing the the architectural history of a corner of a street and how America just gets worse and worse. Really, I I don't know if I can articulate it. Just made me realize that the not only the possibilities of of comics is capturing a larger swath of time than one might think was possible in the more vernacularly understood version of the medium, but also just changed my thinking a lot about what the nation that I was living in and how it was getting worse and the layers of history that were there underneath it all. Um, such so just such a beautiful, concise, powerful strip. Um, and then I think, you know, Richard's book, um, whether directly or not, takes that same approach and then expands it or even explodes it into the idea of, of, of fiction or a novel. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, that, I guess for me the difference between two works is where maybe there's more of a staticness with Crumbs. Or, well, certainly, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no over, there's no characters, there's no overlapping, there's no people in it necessarily. It's just, it's more of sort of a sociological cultural economic cross-section of what was happening in America and it's uh, and the larger forces at work rather than the smaller um, inexplicable particles of being and experience that go into to life so now McGuire's here that was in I forget which volume of raw one of the, the second the second. Uh, second volume second issue I believe I think and you were about 22 when that came out maybe the first um maybe i can't remember <laughs> sorry i'm good with math um all right i'm wondering about the effect it had for you um seeing raw and these things and being um contacted by by francois and and art spiegelman um and and how that kind of set you in a creative direction at that point sure i mean that you know that particular strip certainly i i tried to write it i tried to write about it in a review i wrote a three years ago or something four years ago for the guardian but that really was like a like little sort of subatomic slash atomic explosion in my brain just seeing that there was a completely new axis available to comics not just left and right but up and down back and forth and in and out that could be grasped and turned and made into a, a, a pathway and fulcrum for or a pathway for fiction and a fulcrum against to work. Um, and um, 
I think I wrote Richard McGuire a few months after that appeared and um, he very cordially wrote me back and um, we met up in, in New York maybe a year later. It was really a really a um, kind of life-changing moment for me to get to meet him and see the work that he was doing because I wasn't aware of the the children's book work that he'd been doing. He just started doing covers for The New Yorker and he'd been making these kind of amazing toys for a couple of years. So, um, and um, he was just like, a, it was like a, just a different sort of angling of the, of the, the, way one could be an artist as I'd come to understand of an artist slash cartoonist and is presented by Arden Francoise's raw, the most obvious examples of which being like Charles Burns and Gary Panter and Mark Byer. So, um, Ben Catcher. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of a single publication that changed my life more than, than raw from the moment I discovered it and, and the way that it, it, showed comics as, as a, you know, as, as artists said, a medium for self-expression and, and presenting it in such a way that there wasn't just a, a single track or a single attitude or, or, a, or a particular critical disposition or anything like that, or just I think possibly a fiction and memoir or commentary. It was, it was amazing to me, the variety of artists that were working at that time that they assembled into into a, an anthology that that was not only great individual work but was it seemed almost greater than the sum of its parts it's so hard to edit a comics anthology because the way that visual information bumps up against itself and and the way topics and themes kind of interact and swirl around each other but they really did it with every issue of that of that magazine i really don't think you look at i mean so many other comics anthologies just seem to kind of miss the mark you know you can't just have a call for entries and include everybody who sends stuff in. You have to really think about how the the work works together in a, within a book and against against you know page by page. So mm-hmm. I, I seem to remember seeing a thing about how they would do like multiple versions of the same book, at least with the the bigger raws, um, mm-hmm. just like really working on like getting that perfect sequentialism yeah, for lack I mean, of a better term there yeah we'll see like a, you know a cover is going to affect your immediate um experience of an entire book like that and they were very very sensitive to that so and also you know very tried to be very sensitive then to how that how artists you know would would react being put next to each other and so i tried to follow all of those those kind of invisible hard to pin down principles when I did um, the McSweeney's comics issue too for better or for worse so. it's interesting that McSweeney's was really a gateway for a lot of folks at that time well, it's nice of you to say that I mean I really did kind of conceive of it that way when Dave Eggers asked me to do it I knew that it would land land in the in the laps of probably one of the one of the more thoughtful and receptive and intelligent um readerships uh, available at that time so i really put every single thing i could into it and spent many sleepless nights um panicking about it not not sleepless because i was working hard which i was but just panicking because i had no idea what i was really doing and whether i was working or not so but they were really um, the editors they were very attentive and agreeable to every sort of crazy idea I had from, 
from including the little booklets of, of Ron Regis and um, John Porcelino's stuff to doing the fold-out cover. I just wanted to, to try to make something that was as, as seemed as fun as, as comics could could be in an object that would you know you might want to keep or and to try to also um, attend to the entire history of comics from its very beginnings to the idea of the Sunday page kind of try to get absolutely everything I could in there as well as say like Philip Gustin you know is, is, is probably the greatest exponent as a as a painter and of course I couldn't get everything and I wanted to but um, it was complex let's say yeah a lot of a lot of releases and a lot of yeah, I can't imagine putting together a project that big. Um, well, yeah. Anyway, I was grateful they did it. That's for sure. So, um, another one uh, that's a more recent work because um, you don't actually talk a lot about recent stuff, but you do make a point of talking about Jerry Moriarty's um, "What's a Paintoonist," um, mm-hmm. and, um, and and I was happy, and I want to talk to someone else about it because, and I got the same. I like what you said about it was kind of the same feeling I had of just like, um, just the humanity of that book and just like mm-hmm. how Jerry just puts himself all out there. And, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in, in, in looking at Jerry's work and how it's changed over the years. Um, and cause Jerry's kind of working in his own world. Um, mm-hmm. how a fan of that or being a really of interest of, of Jerry's work, how that, has kind of encouraged you or um, kind of jumped in your brain. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think he's one of the greatest working living artists there is. I think about his stuff all the time and, and not only just simply as the, really the only painter I can think of who is able to make a comic strip painting that you can look at and read and have it work and have it affect you emotionally. I tried to figure that out when I was in school. How, how do you make a painting that you can both read and look at? And I, I finally just kind of gave up. I, I couldn't figure out a way to do it where it didn't seem too forced or carnivalesque or something. And then here's, you know, Jerry's been working for decades making these beautiful, unpretentious, very direct, but also very strange, but not in a self-consciously strange, but strange in the way that human beings are strange and the way that we remember our lives and the way that our memories fit together and we can take them apart and put them back together in some sometimes very disquieting ways. And in his work is, is, um, so un how do I say it? Um, unaffected really. And, and so much of himself and unapologetically of himself, but also still so welcoming. Yeah. And I, and such of a, of a, of a, you know, and his entire life's work is of a piece. And then the fact that he, you know, moved back up to Binghamton and bought his childhood home and had been, he'd been doing these strips about living in that house as a, as a reimagining himself as an, as the older man that he is painting in the basement that he had as a kid within the, for better or for worse, I guess you could say the ghost of his father standing behind him as a younger man than he is sitting on the chair. And then he moves up to that house and, and, and is doing more or less exactly that is just so moving. I don't, you know, every single cartoonist should have a copy of that book. Mm-hmm. I think it's in the same way that you should have a copy of Richard's here. It's there's something about that that really points in a new direction for the emotional content of comics. And in such a subtle, beautiful, 
way. I, and I, I, I also feel like it could, it's like, I mean, there's a whole generation of readers out there who are sensitive to, or more, even more sensitive to the, to the language of poetry than I certainly am, who I think would be deeply moved by this book. And I don't know how to tell them about it really. It's, you know, how does, how does one, because they're not, their idea of comics probably stopped somewhere with Pogo, but I feel like if they could see this book and, and the honesty and, and emotion within it, that they'd really be moved by it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. So there's something I just, and he's such a, a warm guy too. So I feel very grateful for getting to know him over the years. So there's something amazing about a man in his seventies making like the most alive comics work right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would agree. I um, have you. I you know, pardon my ignorance here, but have you interviewed? Yeah, we've we've done two interviews oh, now. Great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. Okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay, well, my apologies. No, so. no worries. Um, okay. It's uh, I, I I'm a big fan of Jerry, and um, mm-hmm. and, and I know you are as well. And that's why I want to kind of give Jerry a little a little shine here, because um, I think mm-hmm. like that that work especially like I I visited him when he lived in New York and he'd showed mm-hmm. me um, his portfolios of, of that work and mm-hmm. it was just amazing how affecting it was and then when the book came out and there was even more uh, and just knowing like the relocation and all that kind of stuff and it's it's just all very amazing like I I, I think he's really important and he's a great chatter yeah right <laughs> great okay. um now, reading your work in the week, it, it, one of the things that's interesting is getting to know uh, stylistic movements and shifts and um, kind of seeing kind of where you, where you come from and where you end up. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm really interested in that process because, like, reading Jimmy Corrigan especially, like, there, it's a different book for me at the beginning than at the end because um, I mm-hmm. think you worked on it for quite a number of years. Um Seven. And and that shift in yourself in kind of how you wanted to draw and how you wanted things to be represented. Because um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the book, it feels like you're very concerned, like a big part of the art is, is having those curves and those turns and like you kind of see um, parts of the figures, like especially when you're mm-hmm. seeing uh, Jimmy's fantasies of like cutting his dad and stuff. Like you really get that, like mm-hmm. that, that visceral and the figures, but also in... In a bunch of different ways, um, where later in the work you get more into the kind of flatter um, drawing style. I don't know if flatter is the right word to use. Correct me if I'm not using a good No, word. that sounds fine. Um, sounds great. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering about how that coming through in your work and kind of ending up, I mean, starting at A and ending at B, um, and purposeful or mm-hmm. just kind of natural. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's actually one of the most interesting aspects of comics that it cannot be described or or um, wrapped up, I guess, for lack of a better word, and and really is is one of its strengths. And I'm something I'm trying to. I can't think of a good verb. Certainly not harness or or I don't know. Simply just allow it to happen because number one, I can't allow it. I can't. There's no other. There's nothing else I can do. It takes too long to draw a dense graphic novel for that not to happen. So um, to try to fight again, I think one of the earliest um, 
references to this being a part of comics, aside from the very obvious shifts in the shapes and forms of Charlie Brown's head, was when Art finished Mouse and felt that the, when he'd finished it, he should go back and start over and redraw it all so it all looks the same because the way that he started drawing is different from the way he ends up. But then he realized that if he did that, then he'd just have to start it all over again because his brain would have changed enough while redrawing it, you know? So that really has to be one of the more interesting, strange parts of comics because it reflects honestly the way that we're seeing and experiencing the world in a, in a way that's otherwise undescribable and unconscious and affecting the structure of the story and the feeling and the sort of mirror neurological sense of the story. In other words, the way that the reader and the writer both kind of psychophysiologically inhabit the characters on the page, which is another sort of undescribed or untapped strength, I think, of the medium. Um, and one just simply has to allow those things to happen and hopefully become a part of the story itself. I'm trying to to the best of my ability to make that part of Rusty Brown more than any other book that I've been working on because I'll be working on it for a very long time. So, um, and I think, you know, for better or for worse, it's, you know, on one hand, it's completely crazy to work that long on a, on a book, but at the same time, it's kind of interesting. And in the long run, once I'm dead and gone, it's, well, I've left something behind that I worked on for, X number of embarrassing years. And that's, I don't know, you know, it doesn't matter at that point. It just is a, is a fact around the book and it's a certain sort of condensation of life and experience that isn't really possible. in in too many other mediums, maybe, maybe painting, maybe, maybe film, but I think comics is really where it all kind of comes together in a way where you're, where you're really honestly feeling it through your eyes and your mind, mm -hmm. not just looking at it. So it's interesting. Comics is like there, there's something really unique in the way that you're able to work on a singular piece of work over such a long period of time that you also can't in any other medium um, mm -hmm. in such a connected way. Where uh, Rusty Brown, you've been doing for fifteen years, at least. Yeah, longer. Actually, I started it in two thousand. So. I mean, I've certainly done other things while I've been working on that, like, you know, building stories, and I'm working on two other books at the same time, as well as other projects. Mm -hmm. So, um, And then there's Seth with Clyde's fan, Clyde's mm -hmm. fans, uh, which, you know, I think 20 plus years um, for him to finish that. Um, yeah, and if you look at the, the his visual approach at the beginning to, to the end, it's, it's a very market difference, which certainly colors the the experience of the story in a way that I'm assuming he probably didn't predict, you know, but he embraced it as well, too. Yeah. Um, kind of a couple other things I want to talk about with Jimmy Corrigan is uh, there, there's one page which, um, in the reading, which really kind of stopped me um, from the effectiveness of it was there was a part where um, I think it was like Civil War scene with these mm -hmm. fallen troops on the ground. Uh, it's like a two-panel mm -hmm. spread and then a tree. And mm -hmm. um, and I, I posted online, a lot of people were like, wow, like that that page especially uh, was really effective. And I, and I want to talk a bit about that one, if you're okay with that. 
kind of jumping into. Sure. I mean, it's that that's the case of where I might just simply be, you know, making up an answer because <laughs> I really, I'm not sure if I can I can reliably report back on what I was thinking at the time. So I'll do my best though. <laughs> um. Well, like. Because it, it's not like the rest of the book. It kind of stands out mm-hmm. in itself. Just stylistically, it's also very different. Um, and I just wonder, doing that page, because also it was originally published in the. Is it Chicago now that you'd? Uh, it was. It was called the uh, new. It was called New, new City. City. Okay, all one word. That. Yeah. Um, no, no, it's fine. It was... Um, and so I'm wondering if yeah, that and I made a coloring error on it. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I. Sorry. I, I saw that the I noticed that in the um in the in the monograph where you actually have that mm-hmm. that page in there and so it's interesting to see the differences. Yeah. Um, we we all make changes. Um, and and I'm wondering about that particular thing. Like, did you any intention well, with I'm... it, or just kind of where it was coming from? Because it is very different in there. Well, I think I wanted to, I think if I remember correctly, I wanted to make a break in the story there that took the reader back in time really abruptly and in a way that was maybe more sensually or sense, not sensually, that sounds inappropriate, um, um, more more attuned to an actual sort of, you know, sensory experience. And it was based around some history books I was reading about the Battle of Shiloh where the apparently like the the report of the guns and cannons was knocking all of the, the peach flowers off the trees, you know, and it seemed like, I mean, kind of a silly incongruous sort of metaphor, but at the same time, like, you know, Tolstoy said, every battle begins with, with laughter. Cause when the first bullets start to whiz around people's heads, they laugh because they can't believe that it's happening or it's not really happening. And frequently horrible events, like even what just recently happened in Las Vegas, people assumed it was, theatrical or part of the show or something funny you know and then when they started to notice that maybe it wasn't that's when the horror began so um it was an attempt to get at a certain kind of feeling i guess that way um and also the you know highlighting the the uh the father's cowardice etc and then trying to bring up the the core difficulty of america of the you know a war that was fought for the uh, the the right to own human beings, which informs us to this very moment and is responsible for us electing the president that we have right now, and then bringing it back to what it's really all about, which is consciousness of 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 African Americans in this country and 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 you know the humanity of 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 trying to understand. One group versus another, mm-hmm. so because that's kind of fundamentally what the book is about, I guess, and then the reason why I, I I hope that the character of Amy Corrigan comes across as in some way more real than some of the other and any of the other characters, really. So, with the the finished product, um, the finished book, was that reflective of where you wanted to go when you started on it? Uh, again, that's a question that'd be difficult to answer. That was always yeah. sort of reforming as I worked on it. And, um, it certainly grew in scale and size as I worked on it. Um, cause that was kind of the idea was just to let it happen and see where it went. And I, I don't even remember it. 
um, heading in the direction of history when I first began it. The, the original idea was just going to be a short story about the main character meeting his dad for the first time, and that would be that. But it's sort of expanded from there into the you know, into what it became. So, but the overall structure, I think, probably maybe about two thirds of the way through, I was pretty pretty set, you know. And the and then the fold out jacket itself, I had more or less a vague idea what I wanted to be, but I, I, you know, I didn't really know what it would look like until I started drawing it. So. One of the things you say in monograph is um, something about letting drawing, the drawing tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm curious, I want to kind of unpack that a bit of like how that, that is the, the approach to a page. Um, mm-hmm. And how that comes through in your process. Sure. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, am I interrupting you or did you no. have? No, no. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, again, it's the awkward satellite hookup. Um, that, no, I mean, that to me, that's the, that is the most useful and important part of comics as, as an artistic medium that it really can offer the, both the reader and certainly the writer as, and it, that, which is the sort of endless loop or feedback, um, of, of an image culled from memory and imagination as seen on the page, um, then suggesting what might come next as one draws it. If I, I, I found very early on as a, as a young cartoonist trying to write comics uh, fiction, it, every time I scripted something, the second I sat down to draw it, whatever I started to draw was already so much more interesting than anything I'd come up to sit, sitting, you know, thinking and using language to try to imagine a page. It was certainly easier to script out a story and then sit down and draw, but it was also so much more boring because I knew what it was going to look like. And I'd draw something. I think oh, it'd be, this would be better if it went in this direction or I know I hadn't thought of that before. And the amount of time that it takes to draw a page simply allows for the connections in one's brain to become more apparent. And I found that the longer that I worked in that way, I was shocked at the number of unconscious rhymes and harmonies and connections that cropped up not only on pages, but in the book itself between pages, sometimes even in the same parts of the page that I was completely had no awareness of until I went back and reread it or looked at them. And I realized that my my mind was we had already structured this thing and all I had to do was just kind of let it happen and sort of trust myself in a way that it would happen and that if I had like a nagging sort of inclination in the back of my mind that some the drawing something no matter how stupid or ridiculous or out of place it might seem that there was a reason that my mind was doing that in the same way that in everyday experience when you might be talking to someone something will come up in your memory that makes no sense at all or somehow seems disconnected to what's going on but it's there for a reason it floated to your the surface of your consciousness for a reason and you need to kind of pay attention to that and certainly in comics i i think that's that's uh, it comics are a medium where that not only can be harnessed and, and become part of the story but it's also the medium best suited to representing the that multi-layered experience of consciousness and reality because reality is not just what you see and move through every day it's it's actually much more of what you're remembering and imagining and fearful and hopeful of than what you're actually seeing with your eyes. And I, 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 it just, it's, 
I find it astonishing that we as humans have this ability to visualize things without seeing them. I, I could I could suggest an image to you like a a cat on a fence, something as mundane as that, and you see a cat on a fence in your mind, however that might be. Yeah. But what does that mean? What does it mean when you see something in your mind? I just find that astonishing, and that it that we actually I think we actually see things more in our minds than we see every moment of our lives we see forward but most of the time as adults we're not actually seeing we're looking within ourselves so um to me i mean comics are an art of memory and and then they try to get at they're based on the structures of memory the the reduction of memory the idea of language because our memory is hopelessly couched in language we don't even start to develop memory until we develop language they're so yeah hopelessly interrelated that um comics tries to kind of take that apart and then put it back together in a in, in its own in its own way so and i still think we're kind of at a rudimentary understanding of it as a language in that way so um a couple of things within there one thing i was thinking about is when you talk about the cat and the fence what i see when i imagine that is also not going to be the same thing that you see right um and, and that's but the fascinating thing Right. There's still a connection though, between we yeah. both understand what, you know, our various very particular experiences of a cat can then be honed down to a platonic concept of of what we both agree on as, you know, supposedly being a cat in a fence. And that's also what comics is. Trying to trying to create that visual reduction of something to a taking something that we think of as a word or, or language and turning that into a pictorial language. And as I've said many times when reading, reading a book, you, you lose your eyesight and you instead go directly into that imaginary world and the words on the, on a page create an image in your mind. But in comics, you kind of kept half awake and you see those things happening before you, but you're also at the same time seeing things in your mind. So and the best cartoonists can have both of those things happening at the same time. The worst cartoonists, I think, just try to rely on giving you what's going on on the page and, and trying to divert you with that, that sort of you know, excitement or something like that. But you should always be trying to pay attention to what you suggest in the reader's mind as well. So. Makes me think of that uh, yummy fur issue where Chester Brown is reviewing his own comic. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I like telling so, people yeah. about that because it's not an obvious Chester comic, but I think it's such an interesting critical analysis of like, what am I doing with my comic? What's the purposeful things, and what's the mm-hmm. unneeded? What can I take out? Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, one. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan. Um, one thing I was thinking about with language thing is, um, and I'm sharing this not to like burdenish. Uh, is uh, my dad had a stroke last year. One of the things he lost is is that ability to have language, um, mm. and so he he's unable to to use words, and uh, he's unable to write. But he still thinks he can write. He still thinks he can speak. Um, mm. But that v- the sorry. it it is what it is. It's 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 a process. But um, mm-hmm. part of that is also learning um, for him what he what he takes as language and what works. And that's kind of the interesting idea where uh, when you're talking about visual language and how um, that can work for folks, can can create an understanding 
Um, and this may go back to like what Francoise was trying to do with Tune Books is, is, is really pair these things of um, the idea of words and pictures, but also um, how that kind of affects the brain and pushes the brain mm-hmm. in positive ways. So, well, I don't know if I had a question there or as much of a statement or. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. I don't, you know, and of course there's no way to tell really what your dad is experiencing because you don't, you've lost the ability then to have that common, common, you know, golly, I can't think of a, another word other than interface, I guess, or language by which to say like, are you experiencing what I'm experiencing, you know? And you can have so... a little bit of that yes and no and stuff, but it's, uh, it's interesting that the brain is so complex that uh, something can switch and you understand things in different ways or your brain takes things in in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I feel like I've well, I know, oh, Go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I mean, I alluded to this earlier, but I, 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 as far as in my limited understanding of neurological research and, and especially into the development of language, that there seems to be very little ability for the human mind to not only create a sense of self, but a sense of, of the past and even to, to make memories without the added facility of language. And it, so those abilities don't really begin until we're either able to speak and or read, um, which is a very, it's sort of, that's a very interesting sort of die in the overall uh, structure to sort of trace the, the origins of memory and how it all works. And I, um, I don't quite understand it, but I think then somewhere in there is, is sort of the key to the, to the whole thing. So. And that that's something you did really successfully with uh, with Lint. Um, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Tried. yeah, yeah. I was trying to. I mean, obviously, it's a very sort of James Joycean approach that I can't take any original credit for. But it was an attempt to sort of get at a little bit of what he was attempting in in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and then also in Ulysses to try to to recreate the structure of understanding and of consciousness on each page that's analogous to the age that the particular character is at that moment. And then to allow those things to layer up in the story as one goes, goes through it. And again, comics to me seem to me to be a very appropriate medium for that because they approximate the nature of those sort of visual templates that we place in front of the world when we're trying to, trying to understand it and trying to navigate it. So I tried somehow to reflect that. I don't know how successful it was, but whatever. It's uh, you you try your hardest. So, I I when I first read that book, um, when it came out, I was I was really blown away, uh, and I found it's one of those works where you could have a reread and have a different experience, um, which oh, I really wow. I really liked. Like you you allow the characters to kind of breathe and have their own lives and um how we understand those early years and how that informs the latter years it's um it's profound to me well thank you that's very nice of you well Um, and also i was trying to take a character who was obviously not very likable and to try to understand him in a way that was maybe you know at least not sympathetic, but empathetic to try to, to somehow feel through a character who is otherwise one might want to want to 
on a distance one sells from or even discard. So that's really what what it's about. So I almost feel like a lot of Rusty Brown, your the 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 series within itself is kind mm-hmm. of about humanizing people. Um, mm-hmm. After you kind of originally treated Rusty as kind of a a gag strip in a way, mm-hmm. and you kind of like deviated far far away from that. Um, we're really making him human. Um, yep, that's that's more or less true. He's kind of I've kind of structured the whole the whole story around the, the structure of a snowflake where he's that every snowflake has to have a piece of grit at the center of it for it to form for the water molecules to start. They have to grab onto something. They can't grab onto themselves. They have to have a something, whether it's a piece of dirt or some, some other element. And once they start um, through condensation and freezing, start structuring themselves around it. That's So he's kind of the piece of grit and then the other six characters of the six arms of a snowflake and we see snowflakes as being beautifully symmetrical but they're really not if you look at them closely every arm of a snowflake is similar but but slightly slightly different so and i realize it sounds so incurably wildly unapologetically pretentious for which i apologize that it's you know anyway for better or for worse um I remember um, Vancouver, we had um, this thing, the crazy show, uh, and there was a section curated by uh, Seth and Spiegelman where your mm-hmm. Thanksgiving pages were displayed. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't actually seen any of your original artwork in person before, and that was my first time. And one of the things I found really amazing was um, the underdrawing, uh, the blue mm-hmm. line, and about how there was so much work in there before getting to the ink. Like, mm-hmm. There were things within the drawing that didn't make it to the ink stage. And you don't really mm-hmm. see that as much. And I'm interested about how that plays a role in drafting your work, in, in drafting a page with the blue line and kind of what comes out of that at the end. Um, well, I, you know, it's sort of, I mean, it, it's sort of like seeing, I guess, like composing music. Like there might be directions or threads in composing a piece of music that, prove infertile so you go back and go in a different direction so i suppose it's analogous to that or maybe in architecture where you realize that a room isn't working and so you revise it or something like that but in comics again it's just trying things i'll write notes to myself as they occur to me as i'm writing off to the edge and um those old those old inform for lack of a better word as I work on the, on the strip where it might go or i might completely ignore it sometimes i'll find i'll write the same thing two or three times off to the edge, not realizing I'd already written it down a day or so earlier. Um, and um, I think in, and maybe in the case of one of the covers you're talking about, I had to, um, I had to actually physically invert, like make a mirror image of it simply because the main character was going to be covered by a, uh, by a mailing label. And that completely changed the entire story because then when I inverted the image, it inverted the layout of the apartment and then how it was, how it how it was uh, contributing to another cover then, and so I had to completely invert that, and then that changed its location in the building itself, and the and the location of a particular window that looked then out onto a rooftop, which then allowed a particular character to see something on a rooftop that then became an important part of the story itself. So you never know how these things are going to turn out and affect one's uh, 
stories and you just kind of have to go with it. You know, it's sort of like not fighting the tide or something when you're being swept down the rapids, I suppose. So, And again, um, these are things that you just simply cannot predict. I could yeah. not have sat down and written that whole thing out and structured it ahead of time. And even if I had, then I would have changed it as I worked on it. I, I really don't, I don't understand how it's possible to even to do something like that, unless you're working in a collaborative, a collaborative uh, medium like film where you've got hundreds of people, you've got to tell um, what to do and make sure that you're not wasting money and time and all those sorts of things, which just sounds torturous to me. So and there are various filmmakers who try to get around that by working more on the fly and, and just hoping that things kind of fall together. But as a cartoonist, um, it's just just one person sitting at a table. There's really nothing at stake other than the time you're spending. So it, um, it really seems like, at least in my own case, it's um, it's the only way I could, could ever work. So Yeah. Now, you've done some collaborative work um, with with some animation stuff with folks. Mm-hmm. Um that's what my that... friend John Kuramoto, who's, uh, who's sort of a, a genius polymath, who seems to be able to do absolutely anything that I, he probably could come over and like rebuild my car for me if I, if I, you know, if I asked him to. Um, he can. He started out in pre-press work and understanding printing, and then taught himself animation. And he's got this unbelievable, amazing sense of gesture and rhythm that I, I mean, is as great as, as some of the very greatest cartoonists going all the way back to, to H.M. Bateman and um, Karen Dosh, some of those very early 19th century wordless strips. Like he really knows how to, to get at a character's inner sense in a, in a, in a very intuitive way. So, um, and I enjoy, I enjoy getting emails from him at three in the morning when he's working on, on something sort of tirelessly. So, and he puts everything he can into it. His attentiveness to detail exceeds me by, by, by many factors. So I, I am, I'm horribly sloppy compared to him. So. Does that, um, when you do that collaborative work with him, um, what kind of rubs off on you uh, in your own work? Do you kind of take away, um, and bring to your art mostly just a sense that i'm really sloppy and i need to pay closer <laughs> attention to it so yeah because he will he will he will notice like i noticed that you neglected to color the top of this table in panel four tier three do you intend to leave that white or did you want that to be the same color as it is in every other you know and he will offer it in such a quiet scientific way that i just i hang my head in shame you know and it's so but it's always meant in good humor, and uh, he's a very friendly guy, and I'm glad to count him among my host friends. So I'm glad that he's still is able to stomach working on my irritating stuff. So, um, one of the things you talk about, and I think it's early, maybe early to midway in monograph, is about um, the I can't remember the exact words about when you're drawing a comic. Um, like the the self doubt, and it's not an enjoyable process. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering, are there things within being creative that you do get that enjoyment out of? 
You know, I don't really know. I mean, mostly it's just getting done, and it's I, I, I don't think it's important. What difference does it make whether I enjoy it or not? That's really it. Doesn't you know whether it doesn't even it in the same way it doesn't matter whether I enjoy life or not. I don't think that's our role here necessarily. Certainly, you, certainly you aim to. Even the idea of the pursuit of happiness is fraught with that. I'm surprised that even ever made into the into the founding documents because that's that's like sort of a dangerous, you know. My idea of happiness might be quite a bit different from the crazy guy on this down the street who never opens his windows. You know, like I don't really want to know what his idea of happiness is. So, um, and as far as art goes, it's uh, I think the art is mostly about. Uh, failure and despair and difficulty that's this that's the that's the base i mean that's 90 percent of it you're constantly just trying to sift through this kind of wash of of mistakes and difficulty and trying to find things and and put things together so that it works it's not the other way around it's not like it's all snapping together nicely and you finish a page and feel great and you know adjust your waistcoat and then step out of the studio and turn off the light and feel like a good day's work has been done. It's, you know, it follows you downstairs and into your mind when you're when at least in my case, lying in bed and wakes me up in the middle of the night and makes me feel horrible, but it, that's what it's all about. So, and you know, really I, it's, it, I'm just having a physiological reaction to a mental state and who cares, you know, it's, it's really not that important. So um, it has nothing really to do with the experience of the work once it's done. So, and it's, I think a lot of my aim in, in doing this book was simply to communicate that as honestly as possible to young cartoonists who might be trying trying the same sorts of things and feeling that way and feeling like somehow that because they're feeling that way, they're doing something wrong, which I really want to make sure is that, that that I can communicate that I'm communicating that's not the case you're not doing anything wrong that's a I mean great for you if you if you feel better about it than maybe I do but it you shouldn't feel bad if you're having a really hard time of it and that it's taking longer than you thought so and in fact I really can't I can't imagine anybody other than younger cartoonists wanting to read anything I wrote in this so it's it really is I guess Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's not a book I'd recommend to many, really anyone at all. So, well, I know a lot of people that are excited to read it. Well, I, I think we probably operate in the same Venn diagram of, you know, <laughs> so. But nice of you to say. I appreciate it. So, um, on the cover, I noticed that you had uh some CMYK. Uh, spots, um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm and I'm interested about that that really being very specific with with the cover coloring. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, the book itself is kind of organized around. I use red and blue frequently as the sort of the polar emotional um, ends of of the emotional spectrum, even going all the way back to the paintings I was doing in college and the books that I've designed. And this book specifically goes back and forth between those two colors, even the colors as I use them and as the underdrawing in my strips I was doing in Texas versus what I do now. And then yellow kind of falling in between them and the spine of the book. Um, But those are the three basic primary colors that recreate the world as we understand it in, in the, you know, opaque world of, of printing. And fundamentally, that's what the the book is made up of with these little tiny dots. So it's kind of a joke about 
of particle physics as well as um, printing and and the way that we see the world and light too as well being both a wave and a particle so again wildly pretentious but whatever it's just you know just trying to get at reality that's all so now the book in a way is also um I didn't really realize it at first, but as I was going through everything, uh, it kind of follows the design of the two uh, sketchbook collections. Uh, mm-hmm. In that, you know, the first one was red, the red, second mm-hmm. one's blue, and then this one's the yellow. And, and mm-hmm. I guess I'm presuming that's a purposeful thing. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, more along the lines of what I said earlier of. of you know, yellow being in between the red and the blue. I didn't really yeah. consider it part of the sketchbook con- collection. If I did another sketchbook, it would probably have a yellow spine, I guess. Uh, um, but, um, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a good possibility I won't ever do another sketchbook in the collection. <laughs> but, um, um, but, yeah. It's interesting how the sketchbook collections also kind of end um, around the time that Jimmy Corgan's out. Um, mm-hmm. as a collected thing and it feels like at that point how you approaching your work probably changed dramatically um, with the success of a book like that um, realizing that you know reassessing how you're doing creatively and kind of giving you that faith of continuing I don't know if mm-hmm. that makes sense you know it's kind of a, it's kind of illusory but again it was just the mistake of publishing them I think you know, and then suddenly becoming self-conscious about it. But at the same time, I think I was pouring a lot of my doubts and experiments into the sketchbook, certainly when I was in graduate school and sitting in classes and trying to divert myself while I was listening to lectures or sitting on the train. And I mean, I spent a much more time travel, much more time traveling between places when I was in school than I do now. I'm, I spend most of my time at home. So, um, but I don't find the need to try things out in a sketchbook as much as I do. I try them out on the actual pages themselves now, as opposed to to doing it in a book. I mean, that's not always the case, but it's definitely a, a little bit different, and it's not as much of a necessity. It's more of a um, a diversion or a way of. I'm, I'm just trying different things than I know, I guess. So. But I really think it's the most important tool that any young cartoonist can have because comics is, because it's an art of reproduction, is is kind of a, a public art, and you have to have that very private thing where you can write anything, the stupidest, most embarrassing possible thing, and only you can see it. Yeah. At least you know it's up to you, and you have to have a have a place for that, um, and um, I can't recommend that more highly to any any young artist starting out so and it's not about i mean it's, it is about learning to draw and trying to see better but it's also about having a uh just sort of a, a secret place i guess for lack of a better word so i do have a question from a young cartoonist um okay mr noah van skyver um oh okay well that's nice he's a, is he young i guess he is great extraordinarily yeah. talented yeah yes um he wants to know if you're the type of cartoonist that can compartmentalize your life and your work. Uh, for example, do you need to carry around a pen and notepad so you can write down storytelling solutions that pop in your head? Or are you able to put the work away and uh, keep it out of your mind while the family is home and then kind of get back to it later? 
That's an interesting question. Yeah, that's a good question. No, I'm not. I mean, I don't know if anybody is able to do the latter. I'm very much the former. I'm constantly thinking about it, and I'm things will occur to me at the strangest points, and I'll be thinking about stories while I'm talking to my family or talking to other people. I mean, I've been actually thinking about stories while you and I have been talking uh, just now. So, um, And I do write things down because I find if I don't write them down immediately, I, they'll vanish and there's no worse feeling than that nagging sense of oh, what was that thing, and it just won't come back to you. It's re- it's the worst kind of torture. And then it might you might be lucky, and it'll come back to you a few hours or a day or two later, and then you've got to scramble and write it down. Yeah. But that nagging sensation of that one idea that you've forgotten that seemed so important, you know. Generally speaking, though, I guess maybe those ideas will they'll come back to you in some way. It's really weird, though, we have because we have this physiological sense of something like that being missing. And then when it comes back to you, you get that sense of, yes, that was it. Or you'll have a, a sense of something maybe being almost it. But no, that wasn't quite it. And then you realize you're kind of deceiving yourself. But I don't know where that comes from. That just that weird. You can't really put your finger on it. But um, those are the feelings that you kind of have to follow and trust when you're writing and working, I think, is those those sort of. I think Linda Berry described it many decades ago as the hair on the back of your neck standing up, which is it's about as close as you can get. I think Nabaka said the same thing. That's what fiction should do. So I think that's maybe those strong those words are a little stronger. It's much more subtle than that. And I find that there are moments in my life where I'm doing something so mundane, like I think George Harriman was sort of I've read in a couple of places that he preferred to do dishes when he was at parties. I think probably maybe to get out of social contact, but also because that's when he probably got some of his better ideas. There's something about being in this kind of 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 Veda state or sort of a non non engaged state where your gears are just kind of slipping where all of a sudden the truth of something will present itself to you in such a quiet way that you really have to pay attention and realize that that's the moment. And it really only lasts for maybe a few seconds. It's not a, a state you can, 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 um, keep, keep, keep afloat, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, and it's just something you learn as, as you get older as an artist. So. Even, uh, preparing for this interview, I, um, reading work like, oh, I've got, a, oh, that's a good question. And then it, it would just pop on my head. So like I had to make sure, that I had the notebook with me <laughs> at all times. That's exactly it. Isn't that yeah. the most horrible feeling, too? Yeah. You know, and just, oh, God. It, it, it was worse in, yeah. in university when I'd be in a class. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And I don't mm-hmm. write down anything. And then the exam comes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was that yeah. question. <laughs> right. That's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. You talk about the um, the finished work being the published book mm-hmm. um, and and I mentioned the way that affects something like Rusty Brown um, because mm-hmm. it's still I presume you still have a number of books to come out in yeah, this series sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying each one um, keep them coming <laughs> you have like a long white beard <laughs> <laughs> if I could grow one sorry <laughs> I can't see, but <laughs> yeah. <Hi>. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I'm interested about that idea of of pushing that forward as as that is the completed work. 
um, and everything. Yeah, else that's is the idea. Draft. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's yes. So, I mean, I have sort of a vision of what it'll be like, and I'm going to present it in two parts too. So, in the second part is, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'll actually have to be purchasing forests with my own money and grinding up the trees and making them into paper something <laughs> at that point. But I don't, I don't even know if paper will still exist. It'll be some sort of rarefied, you know, throwback or something. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely conceiving of it that way. So, um, what's it like for you? Um self-publishing um and getting into that level of um detail within your own work um well this would be a way of, of kind of i kind of got a little uh, tired of doing it i guess and for a variety of reasons which are best left undiscussed i found it very wearing and emotionally painful um for a while and i when i decided to do it or take the reins myself and pay for the printing of it and then simply give it back to Fanographics to distribute and then um, following that drawn and quarterly. It felt like I was making art again because I was responsible for every single part of it. It felt no longer like a potentially commercial object. I was completely responsible for it in absolutely every way, top to bottom, and any mistakes then that were there were entirely mine. So, um, And I... Um, now I don't think I would do that anymore. I would just, you know, allow, or, you know, drawn and quarterly would publish it on a, on a periodical basis. And I do, I am planning on doing the next issue as a, or doing the next chapter as a periodical, but after the, uh, the book itself appears for a variety of reasons. So, but, um, you mean like the first like yeah. half of Rusty Brown and then another periodical or? Yeah, well, the next chapter. Once it'll, no, I'm not being clear. It's my fault. My apologies. It's it, it would the, the half first half would appear, and then just for sake of of consistency, then I would publish that chapter then as an issue of the comic book if I do it at all. So because having it come out first would not make sense, and I can't really articulate it more than that. I'm not trying to be evasive or anything, but <laughs> and it really doesn't matter. I mean, there's there's plenty of you know, there's plenty of stuff in the world, so I don't really need to contribute to it any more than I am. So. Well, we do have the new monograph, which did just come yeah, out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I read it in a chair, and it was like all-consuming. Um... <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you very much. So, one of the fun things you do in that book is the um, the booklets uh, within mm-hmm. the pages, um, and, and I'm interested in the challenge of kind of designing that and uh, how those specific works were important to have represented in that way. Um, well, it's a, it's a book about books. So the, the first thing I had to try to figure out was how do I make a book about books that's not just reproductions of the books that people already have? Because, again, an art book is, is usually pictures of things that nobody can have except one rich person or a museum. And I've tried to make art my whole life, basically, that anybody can have if they want it and not feel bad about throwing out. So um, to make a book about that is something of a challenge because if I just reprint the books that everybody has or material everybody has, it's pointless. So I, but if I then include only material that nobody's seen, then it becomes a bad book because there's a reason that nobody's seen it because it's bad. So I had to try to balance the two. And including little um, booklets or approximations of things was one approach towards of, of highlighting um, books as books and also the books as images 
uh, because a miniature book isn't the same as a full-size book. Yeah. And also the idea of, of how memory works in sort of a three-dimensional way, not left and right, but up and down as well. And I'd hope to actually have more booklets in, in the book than I did, but the budget only allowed for like eight. So um, that's, that's as many as, as there were. And I, I tried to evenly distribute them out at appropriate appropriate points. So uh, just to be, you know, I don't know, to be surprising and interesting in the way that um, that art can possibly be and certainly our own thoughts can be. So. I, I think my favorite was the uh, the Rusty Brown chapter. And I posted a photo of, of it kind of closed up online. And my girlfriend was giving me a hard time because she's like, it's a giant book and you've showed this small little image. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's nice. So, yeah, well, I, you know, it's, you know, Whatever. I thought it would be kind of funny. <laughs> so, I like it. It gives an also to... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, we're doing that go ahead thing. Yeah. We could do this over like the Chip and, Chip and Dale chipmunks or something. So. Yeah. No, I'll let you. You're the guest. Um, I, uh, now I can't remember what I was going to say other than uh, just trying to, you know, create a, it's a picture of a book. So why not make the little book itself, at least in a few pages. So. Um, and that's the kind of the 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 rough mock-up as you get going with with Rusty mm-hmm. Brown herself of like this is what this book will eventually be like. Yeah, pasting up the pages in a in a book, uh, sort of a homemade book. It looks more like something that Henry Darger would have had at the bottom of his underwear drawer or something, just because of the number of years it takes. I started with Jimmy Corrigan, and I've done with every every book since. So it's just a way of keeping track of the pages, and I find works better than looking at computer documents. And just creates a sense of the of the thing itself. So and and helps it. Also, I make notes all over the thing of things I want to change or adjust as as I work on the story. So now, one thing I've seen is uh, when there's photos of your of your drawing space, your studio, um, is you'll have mm-hmm. pages hanging within there, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering uh, kind of the purpose of that. Uh, while you're drawing, is that kind of material referencing what you're working on right now or things you want to get mm-hmm. back to? Both. Exactly both. Yeah. I mean, you've, well, either or and or. <laughs> so, yeah. So they're up there for, there might be certain pages where there's a lot of information about a particular room or an event that are, they, they hang up longer than others, or there's might be the most recent page that I'm working from or against or something like that. So, um, for a while I was hanging up uninked pages just so that I, because I suddenly gotten, I don't know why, because I find the writing to be the most difficult and, and the, if, and getting a certain momentum going, I found was kind of helpful rather than slowing it down by inking and then trying to start a new page, writing a new page. So I just kept writing through pages. The bad part of that is that then the blue pencil actually started to fade away, and I found that oh. I was I, some panels were almost invisible. So I had spent a panic two nights going through and completely repenciling everything, and then I just then I spent like a month just inking everything. So I'll never do that again. And was that just for the sun? So, that uh, that was for pages in the most recent chapter. So, and I think it was probably the sun, but also it's just this terrible. I bought a stupidly bought a giant amount of, of uh, blue uh, mechanical pencil lead. I think mm. it's Uniball, if I'm not mistaken. So young cartoonists, beware. Do not use that. It's horrible stuff. Um, 
and unless you want your you want the pencil to fade away i mean i really can't i can't think of any circumstance that you might i mean maybe there's i mean once i ink it i don't care but um yeah that, that seems like a manufacturing flaw but i mean how you know who would want to get into the the blue pencil racket i don't think it's you know it's a business in which one is going to really you know it's <laughs> conquer the world industrially so i love that you don't erase the pencils at all though like it is part of the object within itself it's not intentional i just don't have to it's really it's just not important so and i never i i, I guess i don't maybe when i was back in high school i tried drawing with regular pencil i just i hated erasing it it just i didn't like the way it looked or the way it felt at all so um yeah Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Chris. Um, oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm completely delighted, and I'm sorry that it seems to have taken so ridiculously long. I glad your show is such a formidable force in our corner of the world, and I'm honored to finally be a, a, a part of it in a more you know, a less of a panel way than like the thing that you, I did so long ago. So, yeah. Well, I'm, and thanks I'm... for all your great questions. <laughs> Remember, please don't talk about me when I'm gone.